Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. It's me, Steve Hall, as always. And today I'm joined by Mike Isratel and Alex Bovin. So both these guys have been on the podcast before and they've butted heads before as well. And they may well be doing that again today. We'll see. Uh, and today the guys are going to be talking about something that's actually been on the podcast already slightly debated between Mike and Coach Kasim. And that is kind of pre-fatigue uh, and kind of the, I guess, application and what it really does for us as someone seeking hypertrophy within the gym. So Alex, if you would like to start with your kind of maybe ideas, thoughts, application of pre-fatigue, where maybe your ideas differ to Mike's. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if the, the practical applications is really different, but the, the theory is really interesting. Um, so initially, I guess, you know, when we all started lifting weights, we started learning all these little bodybuilding tips and tricks, right? From like, you know, the old guy in the gym, um, we all heard about pre-exhausting. So initially, um, when I learned about pre-exhausting, it's probably very similar to many people listening to this, was to do like a single joint type of exercise, something to really wear out a specific muscle group then go in and hit that muscle group right after. So it might be like a cable fly when you go into a bench press. And that was supposed to like really exhaust the chest, really hit it hard, um, really stimulate those fibers. Looking at some of the research that's come out, and I really want to get into the limitations of the, of the, of the literature, because um, there, there's quite a few, but the totality of the research that we have to look at um, is really interesting, kind of kind of shows either no effect maybe a slight effect or kind of a different angle. So I'd like to talk about that different angle and the mic can go ahead and destroy that. Um, we had a, a quick conversation the other day where he had a completely different take on this and it made complete sense. So the literature right now and the study that I'm talking about, it's a, a review paper that looked at a whole bunch of different, um, kind of pulled up. So I'm not talking out of my ass. Uh, the potential role of pre-exhaustion pre-exhaustion training and maximizing muscle hypertrophy. It was a literature review with a bunch of authors on it. Um, it was pretty neat, but it basically showed that there's a bunch of research showing or studies showing that it kind of works. It's called reverse. I think about reverse pre-exhaust. And basically you're exhausting your synergist muscles. So the agnus gets more activation. That was a theory. And there's some research showing that to be kind of true, but there's some major limitations there. So what that means is, maybe you do tricep extensions to almost failure, really get a good stimulus out of them, and then you do bench press. So now your triceps are now a limiting factor, and now your chest gets more of a pump or more activation. Um, there's also some anecdotes by people doing like hip thrusts, and like Brett Contreras has some stuff out where people are like annihilating quads before doing hip thrust, and they're getting more glute activation out of that, um, or at least feeling a little bit more. Now there's quite a few different uh, mechanisms to why and limitations, but I'll leave it there so we can kind of pick that apart and maybe fine tune um, the theory. Okay. Yeah, I guess that's the almost the opposite to what you initially stated in terms of the bros were saying kind of pre-exhaust that muscle group and then it gets it even more. Whereas you're talking about there, you're pre-exhausting other muscle groups to make it feel more in other ones uh, rather than the one you've pre-exhausted so yeah mike uh what's your take on what alex has put across there yeah a couple um <clears throat> one is uh from what i've seen none of these studies measure hypertrophy um uh, correct me if i'm wrong if some of them do but i think all they're all emg studies um emg is incredibly limited um 
to a fault, literally to, I mean that. Um, we used to do quite a bit of EMG work when I was in uh, master's program and I was in PhD program. EMG is real dirty data. Um, a lot of times you don't really know the signal versus noise thing is real tough to get around. Um, it does have uses, but its uses are, are quite limited. And the difference in EMG activity versus growth response uh, can be quite large and can go in two separate ways. Um, actually, a very pertinent recent study came out showing, so there's a body of literature that says EMG activation for the glutes is better in uh, hip thrusts and things of that nature than squats or deadlifts. Except your folks are familiar, I'm sure, with the recent study that came out showing roughly double the hypertrophy from, uh, from squatting versus hip thrusts. And uh, you figure, how the hell is that possible? Well, there's a very good illustration of EMGs not sort of showing a whole lot. Um, another interesting thing that uh, Brett Contreras has had to contend with for a while is that, you know, hip thrusts, uh, I mean, the EMG seem like glute activation is occurring very well. They don't seem to be able to tire your glutes out much. They don't seem to be able to give you a really good glute pump, and they don't seem to be able to cause a lot of soreness in the glutes compared to some other exercises like lunges. And um, that's a little bit problematic because you can say this is a great exercise for glutes and then you do it and it doesn't feel like a great exercise. It feels like not a whole lot's happening. And now that uh, the first series of data has come in on uh, differential hypertrophy response, not looking good for hip thrusts in that capacity. Um, but uh, we can come back to the implications there of hip thrusts. Actually, fuck it, I'll just say it now um, because I'll be introducing these terms anyway into the discussion for pre-exhaust. I think hip thrusts, uh, especially depending on the kind you do, have a very good um, stimulus to fatigue ratio, but their raw stimulus magnitude is just not very high. So if you do five sets of hip thrusts, you feel pretty great. You can keep going and doing other stuff, and you can actually do that like four times a week and be okay. You do five sets of squats and you're beat to shit, and doing that four times a week is way harder, it's way more fatigue. So even if squats cause more per set growth, they cause way, way, way more per set fatigue. So probably the best way to use squats and glute thrusts in a program is to say, you know, I'm going to have squats at the beginning of my program because they hit the quads and the glutes. It's great. Hit a bunch of muscles and they grow a bunch. There's only so much squatting I can do because the fatigue is essentially is going to become too high and I don't need that much quad hypertrophy. I'm trying to focus on my glutes. So my base is going to be squatting and lunging and deadlifting. And then I'm going to pepper in hip thrusts after or even before. We can talk about that for pre-exhausting. Um... And what that's going to do is fill in the rest of my recoverable volume with tons of glute work that I'll have to do lots of sets of hip thrusts and I'll have to do them often, but it's worth the fatigue. So the comparison of an equal number of glute thrusts and squat sets is, um, I would say, if you're looking for the very, very truth, it's rather unfair um, because it's essentially uh, saying, well, glute, glute thrusts, the conclusion many people would draw from the study, which is incorrect is glute thrusts are worse for hypertrophy than squats. That might not be true from a stimulus to fatigue perspective. You may very well be able to, and Brett Contreras' programs, to his uh, huge credit, are an example of this. He's got people doing volumes of various hip thrusts that get into the 30 to 40 sets per week range. You can't squat that much. You will die. So uh, basically, you have the situation where Brett is programming these crazy glute volumes, which his clients are recovering from no problem because the fatigue uh, demand from glutes uh, is so low or from glute growth thrust is so low. And the stimulus is low as well, but it's worth it because the stimulus is pretty decent and the fatigue is very low. So you just do more of them and you can do more of them. 
then it saves the rest of your body from being able to train other things and more glute training. So he gets the best results for his clients, pretty much of anyone for glutes, not because he's avoiding squats and deadlifts, but because he's programming this very high stimulus to fatigue ratio exercise a lot. And he also does squats and deadlifts too, right? So I think that's the takeaway from that is that comparing exercise and stimulus to fatigue ratio versus just raw stimulus magnitude is probably a better idea. So coming into the pre-fatigue, post-fatigue thing. So people will say, if you dumbbell bench first and then do dumbbell flies after, the dumbbell bench activates your pecs more. And then the dumbbell flies after activate your pecs less just because they're flies and it's not a compound movement. But that's better. It's in total. And there's one study that says exactly this. There's a total net more muscle activation if you do dumbbell bench first, then dumbbell flies, like compound first, isolation after. Then if you do it the opposite, isolation first, compound after. That study only measures raw stimulus magnitude as proxied by EMG. It's not a very good proxy, but it's fine. Um, but raw stimulus magnitude doesn't tell the whole story. And as a matter of fact, the vast majority of people that intelligently use what you can call pre-exhaust, or we can just do with exercise ordering, is they're using pre-exhausting in order to still hit that muscle robustly, but with a better stimulus to fatigue ratio. So if you potentially do flies first, you don't have to do a whole lot of weight on flies. It's not an exercise you load a lot. You fatigue that muscle considerably. Then when you go to dumbbell bench, your pack activation will be lower because your packs are fucking tired. And the net overall of that set equated workout, the net stimulus will be lower in, in a pre-exhaust workout, like three sets of dumbbell bench, three sets of pec flies. If you switch the two over, the net stimulus is lower if the dumbbell flies go first, for sure. But the net fatigue is almost certainly way lower because the dumbbells you'll have to use in the post-fatigue situation for presses are way lighter. They're way lighter because you can't activate your muscles much more. That sucks. They have to be lighter, but because they're lighter, they take less uh, perceived exertion to lift, which counts for psychological fatigue. Thus, they affect your other exercises less. There's less systemic fatigue and there's less local fatigue because you're saving your joints from having to do very, very heavy weights. That's in fact how most bodybuilders practice pre-exhaust is by pre-exhausting to some extent uh, an isolated muscle, then they can get a comparable but slightly worse stimulus in a compound movement that follows but the fatigue is so much less because they have avoided going very heavy on this compound movement that it's worth it and the stimulus to fatigue ratio is better. So then folks like that, instead of doing three sets of flies, or sorry, three sets of presses and three sets of flies and getting this much fatigue and this much stimulus, they'll do four or five sets of flies and three sets of presses, get same amount of stimulus, but this much fatigue. And then that's really good because then they can sandwich more of that training in or leave more fatigue room for other training. So if you're looking to get as much raw stimulus magnitude as you can out of your lifting, pre-exhausting is probably not the way to do it. You're fundamentally, you're spending time tiring the muscle out using an isolated single joint movement that's not going to be able to recruit as many fibers and forces and velocities as a compound is, but it could save you fatigue in a really, really big way. It's not a gigantic advantage, but it's a net balance advantage. And in every single one of these studies, um, Stimulus to fatigue ratio is not defined. It's not a, a measured. It's not attempted to be measured. The only thing we're really measuring is a proxy of raw stimulus magnitude. And that's my sort of main takeaway from those studies, finding that pre-exhaust doesn't quote unquote work. Where in the real world, if you look at real bodybuilders and folks training, uh, they see that if they do leg presses first and squats after, they might have to squat 100 pounds less to get a, not as good of a workout for the quads, maybe a 95% as good workout as it would have been squats first leg press, but maybe only 70 or 60% of the cumulative fatigue. 
uh, especially systemic, especially axial fatigue, like the, through the spinal cord and so on and so forth. So all of a sudden it makes more sense in the context of someone who is very fatigue constrained. So if you have a new beginner to training who's uh, systemic MRV is super high, so is a local, and you have someone or who doesn't have a lot of time to train, then they'll never hit their fatigue window. They just never hit their MRV anyway. Those people absolutely should not be pre-exhausting because it's like just putting a, 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 spoke, a stick in your spokes. But for folks that really want to target one muscle and not others, for example, if you want your squats to do more for your quads than any other muscle, then pre-fatigue is a good idea. And especially for folks that are trying to keep their systemic fatigue low, uh, joint fatigue low, et cetera, and still trying to get a reasonable level of stick. Really cool. So I guess in summary, would that be the pre-fatigue, um, the way that you would see it being used is to improve the stimulus to fatigue ratio in that we'd get maybe a little bit less stimulus, but for much less fatigue. And for someone who their MRV, maybe they're in like a specialization phase or they're very advanced, uh, they're people or people who just have lots and lots of time so they can make up kind of the extra time that the sets might take Potentially, I guess that might not even be the case because they're now pre-fatigued, so they're using less weight. Rest time yeah, is and, and there's also, but, so I just have to get a little bit more technical real quick on, on one of the yeah. applications here. To, uh, the pre-fatiguing will affect muscle activation differently depending on the type of compound movement you're using as the compound movement. So if you have, uh, if you look at something like a press, like a bench press, there's actually only, you know, if you count major joints, there are only two joints that are involved, the shoulder joint and elbow joint, right? And if you, so there's essentially what's, what's called like one degree of freedom. We didn't even need to talk about that. Just being not sciencey for no reason. So two joints. If you chemically shut down the triceps altogether, you can actually bench press with no triceps whatsoever because, because it's a fixed bar and you push your humerus in this way, it automatically locks out the elbow. It just does because there's nowhere for it to go. Um, same thing for the chest being deactivated and the triceps. You can, you can do a bench press with only your triceps for sure, because just by extending from the bottom of the press, you will eventually lock the weight out. In those situations, as one muscle becomes very tired, the other muscles can take over more and more and more and thus see their own high levels of activity, which is why in the studies we sometimes see that if you pre-exhaust the bench, the triceps are actually more active than you would expect. Because the chest is tired, you still trying to move the bar. The triceps are like, fuck, like, we got to do something here. Let's push as hard as we can. That's not the case with compounds that have more than two joints, squats being an example. If your quads are pre-exhausted, there's actually no way for you to be able to squat that amount of weight, especially if you go low using any other muscle because you'll simply tip over, right? So if your quads don't work, it, there's no way that you can use just your glutes to squat because there's another degree missing there. Uh, the lower back will round and so on and so forth. So what ends up happening is if you pre-exhaust your quads, other muscles of the body like the glutes probably won't show a higher activity because there's only so high an activity they can get to to where the quads become the very, very definite limiting factor. And if you've ever tra trained with a pre-exhaust system or just not even system, if you've done leg presses before squats, you know that your glutes aren't taking over uh, because you feel your quads more every rep 
And when you get close to failure, your quads just do like the, where they just don't do anything anymore and you just drop the bar. You're like, shit. They're like, did you, was it really heavy? And you're like, oh, the bar felt light. Every mother muscle felt light. But if I just pressed with my glutes, I would simply fall backwards. Like if you just look at how the glute works at the hip, it just does this, right? You would do this and then your quads don't push anymore. So you just keep gluing your glutes and you would just fall backwards, right? That doesn't happen in a bench press and it doesn't happen in a leg press, right? So if you have two joints, pre-exhaustion doesn't work nearly as clearly. It still works and I'll explain why in just a second, but the other muscle can, can compensate quite a bit. On the other hand, uh, if you have a situation where you're doing um, – what's it called, uh, you know, three joints or more. And if you count the squat as technically all the spinal joints are each one joint, or we just count the spine as one joint, then, you know, there's your three joints, then you're, you're in a real serious problem because no one muscle can take over and just let, you can't just squat with your quads. Imagine if you lost all glute activity and hamstring activity, you would do this, like your quad, here's your uh, femur and here, or sorry, yeah, here's your femur and here's your, your spine. If your quads worked, it would extend your femur like this and you go like that because <laughs> your glutes are literally what straighten you up as you go up. So it just wouldn't work, right? So in essence, uh, more, more compound exercises are more supportive of pre-exhaust working in a more pure fashion. But pre-exhaust still works to some extent as predicted even in the two-joint exercise. So we can look at, let's say, a Smith machine branch press. So it's a real good example because you don't even have to balance the shit, right? You just press, right? So... If we train our chest first, sweet, okay, we got a lot of activity for the chest. And then we train uh, uh, just like flies first, right? And then we do Smith machine. Bench press. Will the triceps work to a considerable extent? Yes. But how many repetitions will you get in the bench at your usual weight versus if your chest wasn't pre-exhausted, fewer, considerably fewer. And as you approach failure in the bench press, even when you're fresh, no pre-exhaust, your triceps still work maximally as you exhaust your uh, pecs because your pecs, as they approach failure, your triceps still have to take over. So it happens whether you pre-exhaust or not. It just happens quite a bit. It's very evident when you pre-exhaust because your pecs die out so much quicker. So if we're looking at the total number of repetitions you did at a given load on the post-exhaust bench press with your pecs tired, the total number of reps is like this. And then we count every single one of those reps, how close to failure the pecs were, the effective reps concept, which isn't uniform, but it has some merit, right? Those close to failure reps are probably more hypertrophic. Not the only hypertrophic reps, but they are more hypertrophic. Essentially, what a pre-exhaust does is it you have a set of 15 on the bench and the last five were really hypertrophic. Pre-exhaust means that for the pecs, now the last, you know, five are occur from rep seven to rep or rep two to rep seven, right? So you, you can only do seven reps instead of 15 because you're pre-exhausted with your chest, but almost every single one of those reps is very hypertrophic for your chest. And of course your triceps kick in too, so it's sort of also hypertrophic for your triceps, but you miss a lot because you miss a lot of high quality reps there for both your chest and your triceps. So what ends up happening is if you pre-exhaust, that's sort of a way to increase the fraction of total reps versus effective reps in your compound movements for that specific muscle. And if it's a muscle in a muscle group in which you have just one degree of freedom, it actually increases the fraction of effective reps for both muscles, triceps and chest. But if it's more than one degree of freedom, like the squat, it only it increases the effective reps fraction for that target muscle. So if you do just three sets of one, three sets of the other, you're probably better off doing you know, bench press first, then flies for your chest, 
But if you're doing uh, any number of sets to equal the amount of fatigue total, you can do more sets and you get more effective reps through all those sets and thus, but with way few total reps, right? You do a set of 15 on the bench. It doesn't matter how pre-fatigued you are. It's, make, gonna, it's gonna be more systemically fatiguing than doing a set of seven because your pecs are already dead. Right, so that stimulus to fatigue ratio still benefits, even if the triceps turn on towards the end. The stimulus to fatigue ratio still benefits the pecs to a really, really considerable extent. Fantastic. I'm going to let Alex. Do you have any thoughts to respond there? Yeah, um, quite a few. I don't disagree with any of that. I do have some things to point out. Um, so looking at some of the research, and to be honest, I haven't had time to go in depth with looking at every single study on pre-exhaust. Uh, but just kind of glancing over, um, some things that actually kind of corroborate what Mike said was um, there's a recent, kind of recent study where they did uh, like leg extensions before leg pressing. Um, and what they found was at the end result, very, very acute study. They didn't find much. Like there wasn't like a big difference. Um, but one of the things they did find was leg, uh, doing leg extensions before doing leg press limited the amount of reps um, that uh, the pre-exhaust group did uh, versus not. And that kind of makes sense, right? So if there was a effective reps, um, if we're talking about effective reps, which is really interesting, uh, let's say the last, I don't know, between five to seven reps were super effective um, or something like that, right? We, we know that you don't like, there's not 15 reps and by none of them are not uh, hypertrophic until you get to the, like that last five. But let's say those last few reps are very hypertrophic. Um, so if you go from leg extensions, um, like sub-maximal but pretty good stimulus to like a leg press, you're damn right you're going to limit your, your uh, reps. Uh, in the study, they say it's a bad thing because you're limiting your volume and all that. But if they're more simulative in all of those reps now on the leg press that you just moved directly from um, to from the leg extensions are more simulatory, then that would make a lot of sense that to, to be uh, beneficial, right? Because now every single set of leg press is super effective. Um, and you're not you know, wasting time uh, essentially going through all these reps to get to those last couple reps. Um, as soon as you get to the leg, uh, the leg press from the leg extensions, it's here, you're fried. Um, my anecdotal experience is that's absolutely true. Um, but, you know, that's the anecdotes around the goats. Um, the, the, uh, the studies that look at pre-exhaust either accidentally or on purpose, they usually use EMG. They do use a lot of uh, RPE and RPE type um, stuff. This, they kind of look at fatigue. Um, and it's always, of course, people doing their pre-exhaust are always or tired and RPs through the roof, which makes a lot of sense. Um, there's very little, if any, longitudinal studies, so it's hard to look at just that. So theory is really important here to look at um, the application, right? Um, I do like the effective reps um, theory. Um, the problem I have with that, and it's not a problem, it's kind of being pedantic, um, is how submaximal versus maximal you go with the pre-exhaust. I think you have to be very careful of how you set that up if you're someone who really wants to target this. If you want to try and do leg press or leg extensions before going into a squat or something like that and setting it up, you probably shouldn't be going to failure. Um, there is things like in motor unit physiology research where if you just fucking destroy, let's say, a specific muscle group, there is a point to where you really can't contract much. You're just going to get kind of give out and have no results. Uh, they can't really have any force output after a certain level of just going crazy like complete concentric failure so it's probably good not to go to failure on the first exercise and then move in um, it's probably better to get some good decent submaximal exercise and then going into the compound 
um, exercise that's really going to hit every effective rep. So there's probably some sort of range there. What do you think about that, Mike? Mine off? Um, I have a slightly different view on that. I think those are all very interesting ideas. Um, so if you hit a pre-exhausting move to failure, so much so that you are no longer able to robustly activate that muscle group in the next exercise, aren't you kind of just done training anyway and you've already activated everything you're gonna, exhausted everything and you're sort of just done? So maybe it's like a, like a dosing thing where if you do 10 sets of leg extensions to failure, there's just no point in squatting after because your quads are milked out. And if you could squat and still activate them, they by definition wouldn't be milked out and then you would get some activation. Um, versus if you did three sets of leg extensions, let's say also to failure, it really, really does a lot of stimulus to the pertinent fibers, really makes the leg extension or the squats uh, have the quads as the limiting factor afterwards, but still allows the squats to be robust. I think it might be a dosing issue. Another thing is this. Um, I think we have to be very careful about selecting the movements we're using for what would be called pre-exhaust because the movements themselves cannot violate the what I would describe as the specificity um, principle of, and the, the implication of it is exercise order. So when your exercise, uh, we look at exercise order, the exercises you do first are going to yield more hypertrophy than the exercise you do second, right? Like my long shot, because there's just more hypertrophy to stimulate when the muscle is fresh and also its ability to stimulate is based on fatigue. So that's kind of a two-part thing, right? Like if hypertrophic stimulus activation of pathways is a glass, the first exercise fills that glass to something like 70 or 80%, the second one the rest of the way. And also as you get tired, your ability to fill the glass more sucks. So it's a two-part problem. So I think what's happening in some of these studies and definitely what happens in real world with people is they use a dog shit exercise like leg extensions, um, which is not for a variety of reasons conducive to a high recruitment of fast, uh, high end motor units. And they end up doing an amazing exercise, the high bar back squat, which all blast the quads. Second, tired. Why would you do that? You're essentially taking a not so great exercise and allowing it to fatigue you for an exercise that is great. So I think uh, in pre-exhaust, we have to make sure that our first exercise is a very good exercise for activating that muscle before we rush in and say, okay, this is the exercise you do first, especially if we want a high degree of raw stimulus magnitude. If we're looking for a stimulus to fatigue ratio, that still makes sense, but we can probably do a bit better. So for example, this is something that Coach Kassam and I talked about. I, the leg extension to squat superset is something just very easy to conceptualize but I would never do it, and I don't ever do it. What is better is to do a bunch of sets of leg presses first. You get to produce high forces, great loads, great quad activation. By the time you get to squats, you get the benefit of the leg press was awesome, just standalone as a raw stimulator of quad hypertrophy. And your quads are not pre-exhausted so that they are the limiting factor, keeping the weight on the bar low and still getting a high degree of effect from squats without a ton of systemic fatigue, right? So you win on both counts. If you do leg extensions and then squats, 
you're kind of like, yeah, yeah, I pissed away all my energy and leg extensions. And someone's like, well, it must have really fucked up your faster switch fibers. Like, nope, it fatigued them just enough to get them to act uh, poor and uh, in a, in a, uh, not recruit as well. It inundated them with metabolites without stimulating the hypertrophy, Yahoo, and now we're going to squats and squats suck too. So you don't want to kill the, the goose that, that lays the golden egg. Um, and that way you have to choose movements that are both pre-exhausting to the muscle that you want to eventually compound later, but also that are very good and effective movements and in the right repetition ranges. And this is a really pertinent point. If you do your pre-exhaust, then let's say sets of 20 to 30 reps, you are preferentially very likely targeting the slower intermediate twitch fibers and not the faster twitch fibers. Not great. Then when you go to your next exercise, your faster twitch fibers have not been very well stimulated, but are so fucking fatigued from all the metabolites and uh, byproducts that they're not going to be very active and you're not going to get a great growth stimulus. So your first exercise, because you are fresh, because your faster fibers fatigue faster and more significantly than your slower and intermediate twitch fibers, it is probably a good idea in most training sessions to train the faster fibers first, which means your first exercise should probably be an exercise that is conducive to heavy loading in the 5 to 10, 5 to 15 rep range. So if you start out with hack squats or, or leg presses in the 5 to 15 rep range, you're checking the box of I'm hitting my faster fiber super well and I'm pre-exhausting, so then squats are going to be gravy. But if you start out with leg extensions or like walking lunges for super high reps and then you do squats, you don't get that fast fiber stimulus nearly as much because you're now doing probably what we could be considered from a faster fiber perspective more pre-fatiguing than pre-exhausting. And that's an interesting choice of terms because some people call it pre-fatigue. Like why the fuck would you want to pre-fatigue your target muscle? Like training a tired muscle is worse than training a not tired. Ideally, it wouldn't be tired. If you're pre-fatiguing it, you'd also be pre-stimulating it. It just so happens that if you want faster twitch fiber activation in your quads, high rep leg extensions are not the ideal way to do so. So, uh, and, and to that end, interestingly enough, pre-fatiguing especially wrong can actually preferentially grow the slower and intermediate twitch fibers because you think about it, let's say you do a skull crusher to close grip bench combo, that kind of pre-fatigue. On the skull crusher, when you've reached uh, concentric failure, it is probably because your faster twitch motor units just straight up gave out. Like they're in rigor, they can't contract anymore for a number of reasons. And this has been shown that they just give out faster than the other motor unit. And because the faster twitch motor units are so large and control such a small, such a large amount of muscle, they probably, a few of them turn off and you can no longer lift any more repetitions, right? You just, I'm failing. Then when you switch to close grip bench, what's happening? You switch to close grip bench, your faster twitch units are just not contributing much anymore because they're so inundated with metabolites. Excitation contraction coupling is gone. They're tired. They're basically off and they're not really benefiting much more. But which muscles of yours, because now you're mechanically leveraged to do more reps, drop sets work the same way, by the way, which fibers are you now still using and still stimulating? Well, it's by, almost by definition, your intermediate and slower twitch fibers. And if after you do close grip bench, someone lightens the load even more and you go again, the fibers using in that third set are like almost exclusively slower twitch fibers because they're the only ones still on. And you know that feeling of like you're trying to push that last weight of a drop set and you're like, I know I'm trying hard psychologically, but it doesn't even feel like anything's happening. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like your pecs are just, my pecs aren't contracting, whatever. My triceps aren't doing anything. I'm just barely moving it. And it's not barely moving with a ton of ripping tension in the tricep, which is what you want for great growth. It's like, Ugh. it's like this like deflating balloon feeling. 
that is you using ex- almost exclusively your slower twitch fibers because your faster twitch fibers are like, wow, fuck this. And they were out reps ago. So now pre-fatiguing is actually a pretty good way to give a whole lot of training volume that they otherwise might not see to the slower twitch fibers because in a straight set, let's say you're doing sets of eight, your slower twitch fibers, when you start contracting them, they can contract for seconds and seconds and seconds after your faster twitch fibers are done. But when is your set of eight over? It's over when the faster twitch fibers have thrown up the middle finger and have started to reach their own local failure. And then you can't lift the weight anymore because it's such huge contributors to the load on the bar. So you do a set of eight and you're like, fuck, I'm on RIR. I got a rack. Fuck this. Like your faster twitch fibers are like, oh, whoa, that was a fucking great workout. Huh, fellas? And your slower twitch fibers are like, we're barely even fucking. Yeah, we were active, but our endurance capacity is so high, we haven't gotten the amount, uh, uh, we haven't been able to contract a whole lot, and we haven't reached remotely our failure. So if you're able to drop the load somehow, and then supersets it's done in a mechanical fashion, right? Drop sets is done just with load, then your faster fibers way early throughout the fucking middle finger. On average, they're still active to some extent, but certainly not to their best abilities. Now the fraction of forces contributed is more to intermediate and slower twitch fibers, allowing you to grow those which is another way of saying because slower intermediate twitch fibers don't grow that well, um, you know, supersets and drop sets and shit like that, you know, it's not the greatest method of training. This is one of the reasons, you know, there's a dogma that's actually true. Straight sets are a meat and potatoes way to grow. Why? Because straight sets give you a ton of rest. And every time the rest brings the faster twitch fibers back to hammer them again and hammer them again and hammer them again. If you just did drop sets all the time, you get one good set of fast fiber activation and the rest of the time they're like drowning in metabolites, can't do shit about it. So another really interesting thing while I'm ranting and I'll probably shut the fuck up, there has been some indication that anabolics enhance the responsiveness of growth more of slower twitch and intermediate twitch fibers than faster twitch fibers. And who does the drop sets and Maya reps and supersets more than anyone? Advanced bodybuilders that are on anabolics. They'll try it and to them, they'll be like, holy fuck, my pump is amazing. I'm growing like crazy. This is awesome. But for folks that are uh, beginners, that, you know, their, fat, their faster tree fibers are way more prone to growth and they're not on anabolics, they'll be like, yeah, I did supersets and it just felt like I got tired. And you're like, well, makes sense because your faster fibers just turned off after a while and just nothing happened. So that's kind of a bit of a grand tour of that subject. Thoughts, questions, confusion. Hey, Pascal here. I just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. See you there. I was just going to, sorry, Alex, go ahead. I was just going to say, I guess, um, just as an additional point there, Mike, that you made, um, it's a good reason why in a training session, you'd always want to be starting with your heavy lifts earlier in the session, not like go light, then heavy later on. You start heavy so that you're actually activating the muscles they're growing the most, just as like a practical, obvious take home for the listeners. 100%. It's a big deal. You want to lift heavy when you're fresh. And so many, there's so many warm-up protocols that are such dog shit. Like so guys will like leg press six plates and they'll do a set of 10 at one plate, two plate, three plate, four plate, five plate. By the time you get to six plates, I don't even know what the fuck you're doing. Your faster twitch fibers have gotten, it's the ultimate way to fatigue your fast fibers without actually robustly stimulating them. Like it's a real, it's really, it's really awful, but your slower twitch fibers get a ton of work. And if you're on anabolics and you're already gigantic and your faster twitch fibers may already be tapped out as to how big they are, that's actually a really good way to train. And it's safer because you get this crazy extended warm up 
artificially make you tired and limiting how many reps or how much load you can use at the end with six plates. You may, you may be fresh, be able to do eight plates, but now you can only do six. It's very low injury risk, which is a really good combination for IFB pro level bodybuilders already at the career peak. Terrible way to train for everybody else, which is one of the many, many reasons specificity being the dominant one, that copying your favorite lifter that's jacked is probably not the best idea without quite a bit of thought, right? Um, so, so yeah, that's a very good point. Very well said. Alex, you had something? Yeah, um, definitely. So there's a lot to uh, digest there. Uh, a few things I want to point out, um, and it doesn't make anything that might said erroneous, um, there's interesting things I like to think about that don't really have for sure answers yet. Um, so some of this has to come down to orderly recruitment or motor unit recruitment. Uh, we like to think that we know quite a bit about motor unit recruitment. However, looking at um, like the you know, godfathers of that research world, like Roger Noka, De Luca, um, some of those guys um, who've written books on this stuff, they they're still you know tweaking things all the time and you know taking things out of books and adding things and. Um, so we don't really know too much about, not every, we know a lot about motor unit recruitment, orderly recruitment, and that comes into play here quite a bit, but we don't know everything. Uh, we don't know what kind of fibers really, um, you know, what kind of motor units really innervate this many, uh, this type of fiber, slow twitch fast switches are mixed, um, that sort of, we're, we're getting ideas, but we don't know for sure. Um, so that's one issue I have, or one thing I like to think about. Another thing I like to think about is, uh, motor unit recruitment is task uh, specific. So what that means is uh, going from like uh, the type of exercise you do beforehand, let's say you're going to do um, stiff leg deadlifts or something before doing another uh, hamstring exercise, for example. Well, we know that eccentric training, it almost acts like a reversal of the motor unit recruitment. So you're going to recruit faster or higher threshold motor units uh, before, uh, where it's kind of worse in reverse, right? So it might you might want to know, uh, you know, think about what kind of exercise you're going to do before. Mm -hmm. uh, really think about, ugh, sorry, really, I just say before this, still digesting. Um, so you really got to think about what kind of exercise you're doing beforehand, right? And what exercise you're doing after. Because uh, motor unit recruitment is not, it's very, very task specific. We know that at least. But we don't know what kind of fibers are really innervated. Uh, we know there's intermediate fibers, there's slow stress factors, there's things in between. Um, so that's really, really, really interesting to me. Um, and it's hard to say. Um, that doing like quad extensions is going to be primarily slow switch. It kind of makes sense. I'm not disagreeing, but it's hard to say one exercise is going to be totally fast switch and other ones going to be totally slow switch. It's also individual. Some people have more fast switch. Some people have the ability to uh, stimulate more fast switch and slow switch depending on training age. So I think some of this uh, pre exhaust stuff comes into play with your training age, um, what's your goal, what you're trying to do um, in the gym. Because um, if you don't have the ability to stimulate as many motor units as you as you can, you know, before uh, depending on training age, that might have you know distinct impact as well. Um, I don't know. Does that make any sense, or am I off? Absolutely. I think like especially at a young training age, there's a real long learning curve of having the technique and willpower to actually recruit um, as many motor units as possible and get as close to uh, failure as possible um, because you're recruiting tons of motor units. Um, and I think folks that are beginners should focus mostly on compound movements that are very conducive to high forces and high levels of effort. Um, and then later on, when that's not the limiting factor and fatigue is a limiting factor, you can focus more on isolations and more pre-exhaust and things of that nature for sure. And everything you said about motor unit stuff was, was correct. I think it's best to look at all the motor unit stuff and fast versus slow twitch muscle activation. 
as a uh, spectrum of slower and faster fibers and of preferential activation of one versus another and not um, just this one's on or just that one's on. So when I say the five to 10 rep range, you know, is faster twitch muscles. I mean, the faster twitch muscles probably get a higher hypertrophic per muscle yield, higher, but not the exclusive yield. Uh, slower twitch fibers still get hypertrophy from that. And when you're looking at the 20 to 30 rep range, both fiber types or both ends of the spectrum get good hypertrophy, but there's proportionally probably more hypertrophy of the slower twitch fibers than in a seven, five to 10, mostly because they probably need more volume to grow. The faster fibers also, by the time they're ready to really be activated, they have been infiltrated with so many metabolites from fibers around them that their excitation contraction coupling is off and they can't be turned on. And that was one of the pieces of research that was introduced, uh, I suppose it hasn't really been introduced outside of my discussion of it into the debate on effective reps. Greg Knuckles alluded to it a little bit uh, in his excellent write-up on the effective reps critique. But, uh, and, and Greg and I had a, a Facebook interaction or a messenger uh, where I, I sent him a study that Brad Schoenfeld had sent me and Greg uh, very much approved. And it's uh, part of a write-up for a guy's, I think, dissertation. And basically, there's very convincing re research to show that in sets of high repetitions, the faster fibers don't just like, don't do nothing, don't do nothing, don't do nothing. And then the last five reps, they just do a ton. And then those are the, the effective reps. What actually happens is first, as Greg pointed out, they're sort of a little bit active during the time because fibers can be, they don't, it's not all or none. All or none is what motor units turn on, but motor units can turn on a little or a lot. <laughs> so yeah, it's either on or off, but there's degrees of on or off, uh, or there's degrees of on, right? So there's off and then there's on and then there's on plus whatever else. So there's definitely true that the faster twitch motor units all, always really work in anything 30 reps or less. They're always active just to some extent or another. It's not correct to say that only the last five reps are where the faster units are active, but also there's another problem in sets of, you know, let's say 25 to 30 reps. By the time you're on rep number 25, the amount of uh, metabolites from the other muscle fibers, slower twitch, intermediate twitch, are being poured on so heavy that, and the amount of nervous system fatigue you're experiencing means that excitation contraction coupling is really largely deteriorated and the faster fibers actually don't even turn on anymore because the neuron that is placed up against them is like contract and there's a bunch of crap in the synapse and even the neurons got trouble contracting and even the brain's got trouble telling the neuron to contract and then the muscle fiber itself might be inundated with metabolites from other ones and it itself just not that great at contracting so you can see it's a very high acidic environment so basically the research shows that a very high acidic environment inhibits faster twitch motor unit contraction much more than slower intermediate. They're just better at contracting in acidic environments. So it's almost like by the time your faster twitch fibers are raring to go, they're fucked and they just don't turn on much. And then you're like, oh shit. So the last five reps of a set of, you know, 20 to 30 reps really does look a lot like the, you know, five reps before that and pretty similar to the five reps before that. So there is no spike in fast twitch muscle activation very likely as we would expect because of the fact that they get tired by this. It's like saving your best weapons for the last battle of the war. But by the time they get there, they've been bombed so much during the war when you kept them in the warehouse that half of them are destroyed. You're like, well, finally we got our super tanks out, but they're dead. Right. So it's one of those situations where um, all of this is, is to the point 
that there's not like this is exactly how to train only your faster twitch motor units. And this other way trains your slower twitch motor units. But I think there's reasonable likelihood that you can train in such a way that biases a little bit more towards one and a, or a little bit more towards the other. Yeah, I think um, uh, I think that the name of that mechanism is called uh, branch point failure uh, or block or branch block point failure. Um, it's basically when the propagation from the brain down the nervous system um, that that propagation just kind of fails, <laughs> and that happens through fatiguing contra uh, contractions. And reading about fatiguing contractions is really hard to conceptualize. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on there that I can't wrap my head around. Um, I'm an idiot, so to read about neurophysiology. Uh, it takes me like days to get through a few paragraphs. I'm like, what the fuck's going on? Um, but yeah, fatigue and contractions and motor unit recruitment, orderly recruitment is, is insane. Um, there's a lot of things we can discern just using theory and it's like what kind of makes sense. But the more I dig into it, I'm like, ah, oh, shit. You know, I thought like, you know, there's large motor units that, you know, control more fast twitch and that turns on here and there. But it's so such a spectrum, especially if you look at evolutionary biology, it makes sense. Um, it kind of makes sense why these things operate. Like, uh, I think there's like, like cats, like big cats can... Uh, stimulate larger motor units like specifically um, when they're like pouncing and things like that so like that shit's fucking cool um, so it's there's such a wide variety of things like we still don't fucking know um, so pre-exhausting is, is really interesting but um, I don't, yeah I don't really have anything to say against what you said just kind of raising uh, some of these these things that people don't know about it's, it's not black and white I guess that's what I'm coming down to it's not as simple as we train <laughs> slow twitch here and then we can oh this is only fast switch um, and, and again, saying, speaking of some people that have more slow twitch or maybe train them more often. Um, it, another, another thing, just kind of a tangent is, um, would it be a bad idea to have points in our training to specifically go after uh, slower twitch fibers? Because if you look at, you know, their, their muscle, I think Brad put some stuff out while he got showing that. Um, we're roughly kind of a mix, right? Like maybe 50% fast twitch, 50% slow twitch, even though their propensity is not to grow as big as uh, type twos. They do definitely grow. They do have a propensity to grow quite a bit. Uh, I think just the magnitude isn't isn't there. So would it be a bad idea? Because they do. That's a fifty percent of the population of, of that muscle. Would that be a bad idea to target those? I know this is kind of a tangent. But no, I think it's a great question. I think the answer is probably yes. Um, I think that there's an opportunity cost there for continuing to grow your faster twitch fibers more. So that has to be taken into consideration. I will say that the slower twitch fibers can probably, uh, can cer certainly have higher work capacities and can probably uh, recover much faster uh, and can probably, uh, uh, so for those reasons, if they have higher work capacities and probably require more volume to grow, more contractions to get the same hypertrophic yield. And because they can recover faster, I think higher frequency training probably benefits uh, the slower fibers and more because your faster twitch fibers, if you truly train them in a way that maximize their growth, they might not have recovered when you should be ready to train your slower twitch fibers again. So if you just look at a, if you look at a muscle, let's say we say we do five sets of eight reps to failure just to keep it simple. I, I like it when, uh, manuscripts and studies are like, we did five sets of eight reps to failure. Like, well, that's impossible because you would fatigue and not be able to do eight, but whatever. Right, <laughs> right. We adjusted the load, like after the fact, or did you erase the numbers? And anyway, so let's say five sets of roughly eight reps to failure, six to 10 or whatever. 
we can look at it from a per uh, fiber perspective, and let's just split it into two groups, the fastest twitch of the fibers and the slowest twitch of the fibers in that muscle group, let's say the quad. So the fastest fibers uh, got, because they don't need as much bone to grow, we could say that let's, they, they probably got their maximum stimulus, okay? Sweet, max stimulus. And the slower twitch fibers probably didn't, right? Because uh, they could do more sets and grow more. So they probably got maybe, let's say, 75% of the max stimulus. And then we say, okay, when do we train quads again when they've recovered? Well, which fiber type recovers slower, which one faster? Well, the faster twitch fibers recover slower, and the slower twitch fibers recover much faster. So maybe Monday we train quads with five sets of eight, and then Wednesday, uh, let's say, uh, I'll make this example really easy to understand. Thursday, our fastest twitch fibers in the quads are healed and ready to be stimulated again. Awesome. But when were our slower fibers healed and ready to go again? Fuck, man, by Wednesday for sure, right? So then they spend an extra day, not shrinking, but doing a whole lot of nothing. And also, it's probably um, reasonable to expect the faster fibers to have a faster turnover rate too. Um, so then, the, the uh, sorry, the slower fibers. So the slower fibers, but turnover rates aside, the slower fibers have missed out on a day of potential growth that they could have had, nor were they ever stimulated to their fullest. So how do we solve this problem? Well, there's actually been a, uh, at least one study to suggest this, and I've experienced in my own training pretty reliably. Uh, there's one study specifically that found that just adding one high repetition set at the end of a, a relatively low, low rep protocol multiplied hypertrophy like way more than you'd expect one set, especially at the end, to do. And I think that might have to do with the fact that the slower twitch fibers up until then were like really just not stimulated all that well. And that set really got them because it gave them tons of repetitions and the faster fibers are already pretty tired and just didn't contribute as much as they could. So now the slower twitch fibers had to do more of the work, got closer to per fiber failure, and got a good deal of hypertrophy. So there is actually an interesting implication here. Not only can we spend a little bit of time training, uh, you know, for a mesocycle here and there, training the slower twitch fibers more and the faster twitch fibers more, just, to, you know, your MRV is only so high, so you can maybe train maximally one or the other, but not both. Here's another idea you could hypothetically alternate workouts. One workout, let's say a Monday workout, could be heavy, super taxing, faster push focus. At the end of that workout, you would do a few light high rep sets because the faster switch fibers are dead, whatever, you're now preferentially, you're not dead, you're less active and you're preferentially now filling in the gap for the slower switch fibers. So you check both fast and slow. That's Monday. Wednesday, you may be in a position where your slow-twitch fibers are recovered, but your faster-twitch fibers are not. So how the fuck do you train your slow-twitch fibers without training your faster-twitch fibers? There's actually an answer to that question. And the answer is likely that you do multiple high rep sets for your faster-twitch fibers, but stop a few reps shy of failure than you normally would so that the faster fibers don't even turn on much towards the end. They just don't turn on much at all. They're on the entire time, but very little. Right? And certainly not in maximal capacity. And because you're not doing a whole lot of those sets, they're going to recover just fine because they're not being very activated and it's not a ton of sets. It's very low weight. So what could be happening is you could do a bench press for five by eight on Monday. And then on Wednesday, 
or sorry, five by eight, and then uh, two by 20 or something, just using the bench. I would switch exercises, but fuck, we'll just use one just as an illustration. And then that takes care of fast and slow. Wednesday, you may not be ready to do another heavy set of bench. And the joints also, folks, we're very well with joint recovery because your joints might just be like, fuck you, you kidding me, another five by eight, go fuck yourself. Wednesday, you might do the bench press, and of course, you'd probably change the machine, but you might do the bench press for a couple of sets of 25 reps where you could have done 30, right? Essentially, preferentially targeting the slower intermediate twitch fibers, and it's not that hard of a workout. It still allows everything to recover, but you do hit the slower twitch fibers a little bit. And then Friday, you sort of repeat the Monday workout, hard and heavy once again, with some slower twitch at the end. So in essence, in every week, your slower twitch fibers are being hit three times more frequently with plenty of volume the entire time, but your faster twitch fibers are getting hit with only twice in a really big way because they need more recovery and they can't train any longer. What do you guys think about that? Like that's something I've had. I've never programmed anything exactly like this, though my own training has elements of it. I've never like released a template or written an article that says to do this, but both from um, getting lots of volume over the week, keeping your joints safe, not becoming injured by training super heavy fucking three times a week or whatever, multiple times a week. And also from the fiber perspective, I think it makes sense. Can, what do you think, Alex? Can you poke any holes in that? Um, so I think that makes sense from like a stimulative, uh, I guess you call it a stimulus to fatigue ratio. I think that would make sense with the recovery. Um, I'm not sure if that makes sense from a, again, we don't know if we can train slow twitch versus fast twitch predominantly. Um, I have trouble wrapping my head around that at this time. Um, just that the, the research has come out with, because I mean, if we look at, uh, for example, blood flow restriction studies, they might, I've seen a couple studies where they've done like 80, 90%, 60%. Then they did like blood flow restriction and then they did like super high rep. Um, and I think they were like leg extensions. They've also seen it with biceps, uh, with BFR training. Um, the BFR group always grows more than the non BFR group. That's super high rep. So, so I mean, you're talking like 20, uh, not 20, 30 reps versus, you know, 23 reps with the BFR. So there's something going on there. Um, is that pre fatiguing something? Is that more effective reps? I'm not sure, but there's something going on if they're consistently growing more than almost every research I've ever seen. Um, looking at that now, they never beat the, you know, 60% up ever in strength or hypertrophy that I've seen. Um, so there's something weird going on there. Um, so have you seen I, the research that the BFR groups seem to grow more slower twitch fibers than faster twitch fibers? I have, I have. Yeah, absolutely. That so makes a lot of sense from the metabolite inundation perspective, right? The faster twitch fibers just give up because they can't. There's excitation contraption coupling for them breaks down way earlier, and then the remainder of the set is on the fat, the slower twitch fibers. And because the metabolites are summed up so much, and we know that we have good reason to believe metabolites are hypertrophic that ends up producing a great hypertrophic stimulus and a great amount of tension that only the slower twitch intermediate twitch fibers really can do something about. So they get a really, really good set. Whereas slower intermediate twitch fibers, even in a conventional set of 30 reps, they uh, have such great ability to buffer and to uh, release uh, metabolites and have them basically go through the, the blood that they might not actually ever even reach per fiber failure, even at those. Whereas per fiber failure is definitely reached um, for the, even for them in an occlusion training sense. Yeah, so essentially what you're saying is uh, doing high rep training when we add the occlusion, we have now created a stimuli or milieu of uh, fucking metabolites in there 
that now those slow twitch fibers can actually get a stimulus, essentially. <laughs> more tension, there's more uh, metabolites if, if that fucking does anything. Um, it has to be doing something because uh, reliably are growing more than non-occlusion of high reps. Um, so that's the only problem I have is um, trying to figure out, because the old, I would say maybe five years ago when I started getting into that type of research, I'm reading into that. Everyone thought, well, you add an occlusion on or you do super high rep training to pre-fatigue everything during those reps. And then those last couple reps, you're now getting into the faster switch. Now sure. it doesn't really seem that way. It does. Uh, yeah. It, it, you're pretty much stimulating fast switch right off the bat, even with like slower switch a little bit. Um, so that's the only problem I have with that is really trying to figure out the orderly recruitment. Another thing I want to bring up is just quickly, because I know it's been almost an hour now or at least an hour. Um, some of the pre-exhaust research is like doing an exercise and then going directly to the next exercise. It might be like leg press and they like fucking hobble over with a research assistant, you know, getting paid nothing to help them squat or whatever the case may be, right? Um, but pre-exhaust still exists in what we do every day. Like we're, we're still pre-exhausting to some extent in our own training. So if, I'm, if I have a leg day and I'm doing squats and then I do a Bulgarian Swiss squats and then, you know, hip thrust or something, they I'm still carrying the fatigue and I'm still carrying, you know, from a systemic and a peripheral to each exercise. And that's interesting because I'm sure you guys have done this where maybe you've done like, you know, lat pull downs and biceps. And then one day you just like fucking switch them. Maybe one more bicep. And then you go, Oh fuck. I'm like PRing on biceps now. They're not fatigued. So that's super interesting. And I want to bring that up because there's a lot of frequency stuff going on now, like five day training and like splitting up your training. Well, when you split your training so much, now you don't have that pre-exhaust from that muscle group. Now, does that makes sense. So instead of you having a few leg trainings, uh, pre-exhausting, uh, uh, exercise pre-exhausting, you now you have none. If you have like a leg day spread out with like four times a week type of training. So that is interesting implications for uh, training frequency and volume. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. So uh, this is something that we'll cover on the upcoming hypertrophy book, but um, local fatigue to a muscle group that you want to train is at least somewhat stimulative uh, because metabolites are probably stimulative and reaching close to failure is probably stimulative through motor recruitment and so on and so forth. Systemic fatigue is not stimulative at all. The more of it you have, the worse. So if you have a situation where you have a choice between doing let's say two sets of chest, two sets of back versus doing four sets of back on one day and four sets of chest on another day. If those four sets are still within, you know, your maximum ability to activate hypertrophy in the last two sets of both chest and back, you're dealing with the same systemic fatigue because both the chest and the back first two sets contribute roughly the same amount of systemic fatigue. If you're on a day where you're doing exclusively back, your second two sets of back are contributing both local fatigue and systemic fatigue. It's a sum of local fatigue. So that's sort of a good thing 
right? More metabolites, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but if you are doing chest first, then back after, you're dealing with the same amount of systemic fatigue for those same two sets because you still had two working sets before, but a lower level of local fatigue, which is to say you're now dealing with a situation that might be less hypertrophic. So there might be a limit as to how much you want to split up your programming and how much you want to do whole body workouts because you end up getting the same amount of systemic fatigue at the end of those workouts, but less local fatigue for the fibers you're trying to train or muscles you're trying to train. And thus that might not produce as much net hypertrophy, certainly not from the stimulus to fatigue uh, ratio perspective. I have a whole bunch of other, uh, uh, not so much problems, but confusion about the train everything once a day. Warming up is a fucking disaster. Um, you have to spend a ton of time warming up, looking for machines, uh, mind-muscle connection for the muscle that you're doing. You know, like uh, once I do a couple sets of bench, like the next dumbbell press sets just feel amazing. And uh, If I just do fresh chest every time, the first couple of sets never feel that great because I'm still sort of warming up and feeling things out. Um, and there's connective tissue uh, situations where if you train chest six times a week, it might not be a thing that is, your muscles are stopping you, but your joints might be stopping you because you don't do heavy presses once a week. Um, so I, I really think that you should be training muscles sort of when they're recovered and ready to go again, but there's a pretty broad range of frequencies where it's roughly the same hypertrophy if you do a little bit more each time and do less frequency than spreading it out a ton. And just out of convenience sake and less warming up and staying in the same area of the gym, I think the less frequent workouts are a good idea. So what I tend to think is like for most muscles, two to four weekly sessions is that real awesome middle ground between all of those. And if you too often start to get into the four, five, six session per muscle group range, you start to have a lot of these issues come up and maybe not the greatest way to train practically, especially from a long-term perspective. What, what are you guys? Uh, I was just going to um, quickly say that to corroborate that, um, back that up a little bit. I'm trying to think of two exercises I've done quite a bit or compounds and more smaller joint. But for example, uh, what I did for a while is like front squatting. I'll do like three or four sets of front squats and then I'll get into Bulgarian split squats right after. So it's a smaller exercise, maybe like one dumbbell, but holy shit, going from front squats to BSS, uh, Bulgarian split squats. Holy shit. Uh, that killed me with like a 30 pound dumbbell with one hand after front squats. Now, if I were to split those up and have one day front squats, Still gonna get pretty good training with the front squats. Uh, maybe two days later, I do just Bulgarian split squats. Dude, I'm like sitting there, like, is this like a fucking warm up? Like, I'm not doing anything. So yeah, there's definitely. You have to use more load. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And I think you would get more hypertrophy that way by splitting them up, but you would get way more fatigue, especially systemic fatigue. And then the stimulus to fatigue ratio problem comes up again, where it's kind of like, if I do four sessions, I get a little bit more hypertrophy, but a lot more fatigue. If I do three sessions, I get a little bit less hypertrophy, but quite a bit less fatigue um, because fatigued muscles, maybe you know, they're already warmed up and your technique is better, your groove is better. It just causes less systemic fatigue. You have to use less load. So I think that might be, uh, there might be something to that. Like once you start training a muscle group in any session, give it a good whirl. My, my own some practical takeaways from viewers is actually quite simple. If you're training a muscle group with less than three sets per session, you might just want to consolidate, right? So if you're training biceps five times a week 
in a few of those or just two bicep sets per session, for the love of fucking God, just take one set from each one of those, put it into another workout, train your biceps three times per week. You'll get great workouts that'll be four to eight sets. According to James Krieger review, that's well within the maximum hypertrophy. You're not doing too many sets per session and you're probably getting really, really great results and in a way that doesn't, you know, make your programming exceeding complicated, have to warm up for stuff, have to take a bunch of other stuff into account, better my muscle connection, uh, probably better for your joints in the long term. I, uh, I was just going to say I found um, when going kind of for the high frequencies, one of the problems I've seen creeping in with people and even myself is that the actual volume for the week ends up being a little bit too much especially from if you're trying to work from a volume landmark perspective like mev up to mrv because if you're training something like five times a week you want to do at least two sets but then that's already at 10 sets i mean if you do three sets every session that's 15 sets that might be above where you wanted to actually be and that for me became a roadblock for progression further down the line in terms of volume and being careful with fatigue management, not going into sessions under recovered. And there was just overlapping fatigue going into sessions. So I have come to the same sort of two to four kind of recommendation myself, apart from something like calves. They're basically one of the only muscle groups I've personally found and a few of my clients find just end up recovering very quickly. And they're also not the same issue with kind of warming up and Kind of yeah. You just sit on a machine. It's not such a horrible experience to have to do too much for that. Yeah. I, he's not here to defend his position. Uh, um, so I'm going to attempt to be as respectful as I can. means with all, all most respect. But one thing that Eric Helms has said about the uh, higher frequency training is that he finds it beneficial to not have to do like one big leg day twice a week or something. Because like, especially in a fat loss phase, like, it's just like, oh my God, I have to do all this stuff. Um, I think it's a very interesting perspective and I think it applies to a ton of people, but I also find that another perspective is perhaps worth noting and maybe it applies to other people as well. It certainly applies to me. Um, you could get overwhelmed in the opposite direction if every single day of your training has a leg exercise. Fuck that. Like, I want to break from that shit. Like, legs are hard to train and I want one or two days of the week where I'm not training them. And I'm okay that once I check you know, check in and hit the timestamp to do legs, I'm okay going after it. And interesting enough, many people probably recognize that once they've gotten through their first set of heavy squats or hack squats or whatever, they're kind of in the zone. Let's just fucking do this. And you kind of want more, but like having to restart your engine psychologically for legs five days a week or whatever, that for some people might be like, whoa, like I need some workouts to be harder and some to be easier and that's easier for me psychologically. So I think that perspective is maybe, I don't know, what, what do you guys think? Which, which side of that do you tend to fall on? Or is it somewhere in the middle? Do you like more concentrated loading? Or do you like loading to be spread out? Oh, yeah. I, I would, I've been playing with this myself right now with frequency, but I like having more, more or less one day of crushing it, kind of. Um, and not to be too much of a bro, but I, it, this makes more sense to me to get out of my head. So I'm like, I got got days to recover. I don't have to worry about crushing us anymore. Um, but I still like have two days that are like crush it, but not completely. Right. So I'm still hitting that frequency. Um, but yeah, I've done, I've had some shitty coaches in the past where I've had, uh, squats like years and years, years ago, um, squats three days a week, like heavy squats. Oh, Jesus Christ. Like a dude, like after that, you know, six, five, six sets of squats on Monday, now Wednesday, I'm like, dude, I don't want to squat anymore. Sure. Like, I'm still sore. Then I'm like, I get through it. I'm like, I got to squat again Friday. I'm like, dude, no. 
So going from like three, four delay days to two, I was like, oh, this is amazing. I can like focus and I have a few days off. Um, so yeah, definitely feel you there 100%. <laughs> Steve, I found, yeah, I was going to say, it's a little different for me because of the fact I split my leg sessions even AM and PM. And I find that particularly nice. Um, so like a heavier hamstring and then lighter quad in the evening. So I get that kind of respite. So I can kind of see that from Eric's perspective. Uh, but when I went to three times per week leg training, it for a time was really nice to be able to spread legs across three sessions. But there was about after three mesocycles worth of it, it was like psychologically just incredibly daunting. The fact that I was like, I have to be recovered that soon after and just constantly kind of teetering on the edge of always being a bit under recovered so having gone back to like two times per week particularly for legs and like chest and things like that i've i've much preferred it interesting cool i don't for the record i don't think there's a a clearly right answer for everyone but i think there's a lot of personal leeway in, in, in how some folks would treat that psychologically and maybe it's just some folks you know, if because I think a lot of the intermediate frequencies are roughly the same uh, effect. If we, especially if we look at the long term, I think they're roughly the same. I think someone might choose to do two x a week, three x a week, or four x a week for a muscle group. Those would be physiologically equivalent for growth, but I think some people psychologically would prefer one versus the other versus the other. Excellent, guys. If uh, obviously we've just been over an hour, if we were to try and give a practical take home on pre-exhaust. I guess uh, from my perspective, from what I've taken home from you both, that it would be something that you would apply in more of an advanced trainee, uh, someone who is having difficulty maybe with systemic MRV, kind of not being able to take everything to their kind of local MRV. And therefore, to improve the stimulus to fatigue ratio, you might include a pre-exhaust for a movement that was in the lower repetition range um, that was particularly stimulus stimulative of the fast switch muscle fibers before then going into a more compound movement. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. Awesome. And don't expect pre-exhaust to be magical. It's not a magic tool for growth. It's a tool specifically for what you said. So when people think like, what do you think about pre-exhaust? I think you need to need it. Uh, it can be fine to train just randomly, but if someone asks you, hey, why are you doing that? And you don't have an answer, or you just say pre-exhaust, it's great. Great for what? You know, uh, it's like, you know, who is chocolate cake for people that like chocolate cake? It's not just some magic food that everyone's going to love. So same with pre-exhaust. It's situ the situation you described is a very good candidate situation. If you're not in that situation, pre-exhaust not only is just another good way to train, as Alex pointed out, it could be a not so great way to train because, it, and as Cassim pointed out very uh, articulately, that you could just be fatiguing yourself needlessly before the best exercise you have and pissing away a ton of time uh, that you should have spent on more core compound exercises and not pre-exhaust. Fantastic. Guys, I want to thank you both again. Um, have either of you got any updates in terms of where people want to contact you or anything that's kind of pertinent that you want to let the listeners know about? Alex? Uh, no, um, I'm getting a little bit more active on IG. I'm never very active on Facebook, so... Um, everyone can still find me there posting away and yeah, feel free to message me anytime. Drinking lots of orange juice. I've noticed. Orange and cranberry juice, man. <laughs> Anabolic secrets. Um, I am putting out a lot of stuff on IG all the time, so follow me there. The hypertrophy guides on uh, Renaissance periodization are getting updated once every few weeks. A forearms guide 
just recently came out. So get your lube out, you know, whatever masturbation joke people like to insert there. Um, usually in a self-congratulatory manner. Hey, Dr. Mike, uh, jacking off. I'm like, fuck, you're the first person to think of this. I'm so glad you posted it on Instagram. Amazing. Uh, but uh, in addition to that, um, when when is this going to air, Steve? Probably uh, at the end of this month. Yeah. At the end of the month, when, I, when you hear this, there may be no more tickets left for the Revive Stronger RP versus 3DMJ Clash of Civil War in London on May 9th. I'm buying my plane tickets and Airbnb stuff this week. Um, it is on, and hopefully there are a few tickets left. This is sold incredibly fast, so if you are listening to this and you think you might want to go, now's probably the time to decide and buy the last few tickets because uh, there is... Uh, and this is not a sales pitch. There is a very good chance that come April, there will be no tickets left. Like, Steve, that's pretty reasonable, yeah? We have 20 tickets left or less at the moment. So, yeah, yeah they're, they're going to be sold out. This is, <laughs> yeah, if this is the, you know, at the, you know, several weeks from now, there may be 10 or fewer left. And um, I will say that in the last two weeks of sales for these kinds of seminars, tickets go real fast. So if you're thinking like, oh, I might want to go and you wait for the last like two or three weeks, you may be looking at no tickets at all. And then it'll be super sad because you'll say, hey, why are you guys sold out? So if you're thinking about going, now's the time. Uh, I'll also say real quick, uh, tickets on uh, the RP site and on my Instagram, uh, Brad Schoenfeld, social media, and Ben Henselman's, we have a seminar in New York City, really far away from London. If you can't make it to London, we have a seminar in uh, in a month in New York City. Look into those. Um, that is currently selling at a, at a decent pace. There are still quite a few tickets, so you don't have to rush to buy them. But if you're in the New York City area or anywhere around, a super, super duper hypertrophy seminar, give that a look. Um, and definitely for that one, for sure, keep a look. And it's coming up sooner, so still some time to buy. But for the Revive one, I'm telling you guys, these tickets are not going to last. So. Thank you so much. Thank you for the sales pitch, Mike. And uh, thank everyone for listening. And I, again, if you are in New York, I highly recommend making it out for that seminar. Haven't seen Menno present yet. I've seen videos and he's fantastic, but I've he's been really and seen Brad. Brad's always fantastic. Mike has obviously uh, got my recommendations and just being at a seminar and being able to network is fantastic. So Alex, again, thank you. Um, and thank you both. And we'll catch you soon. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Flor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for 
People within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can you can log your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics, discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're going to have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're going to go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're going to be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.